I'm Jeannie Allen, and this is Reality Check. Reality Check is produced by National Review and is one of more than a dozen podcasts offered on the National Review online website. If you'd like a free subscription to the podcast so that you never miss a program, simply sign up at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or tune in. My guest is a Hoosier and a proud devotee of Milton Friedman. For those of you who don't know Milton Friedman, he's the renowned economist who first came up with the notion of a voucher. Robert Enlow is president and CEO of EdChoice, and under his leadership, EdChoice has become one of the nation's most respected, successful advocates for educational choice. But beyond that, and probably more impressive, is once upon a time, Robert was a social worker, a liberation theologist, and a dedicated liberal, I think I heard once, Robert. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, when I was uh, in a postgraduate work, I actually attended some living Marxist rallies. So I go way back in the day to the left side and and realized when I got lucky enough to meet Milton Friedman that there was another way of thinking about the world. But isn't that always the way, is that uh, you start off from a perspective that you think that government and um, top-down controls to help people most in need are important, and then what you found through your experience and now is the culmination ed choice is that people really do need freedom. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. What I learned was from Dr. Friedman and my experience as a social worker is it's, it's that old adage, you can lead a people to water, you can't make them drink. And so one of the problems with top-down control is you try to force people to drink. It's far more effective to empower them to, to do what they want to do anyway, which is eat, drink, and be merry, right? Or in our Constitution's case, you know, uh, pursue happiness, you know, life, liberty, and happiness. And so what I realized very quickly was that it'd be far better to trust the people who have more interest in their children, uh, who have more desires to do what's right for their children than to to some faceless bureaucrat or some faceless government somewhere else. And so today, uh, for our listeners, Robert, you and I are sitting face-to-face in Washington, D.C. We have been fighting the wars and trying to get not just states, but people at the federal level to appreciate and respect the kind of authority you're talking about. So this is regarding educational choice, educational freedom. Bring us up to date about what's happening and where you think the biggest opportunities are for 2018. So the good news is we've seen a ton of progress. And Jeannie, you've been part of that for a long, long time, and it's really cool that you've been doing that. And and I was talking at another meeting we were at earlier this morning. I, I didn't say this, but the combined years between the two of us would, would, would go a long way. It's scary. It's scary. Reality is, is when we first started, there was no choice, really. I mean, there were there were some public school choices, or if you were a family, you could move, or if you wanted to lie about where you lived. That, those were the options out there. Now we've seen this traumatic growth in magnet schools and public schools. We've seen charter school growth, and we've seen uh, non-public schools, so allowing families to take public funds to go to non-public schools. That's been growing off the charts in the last uh, 10, 15 years. We now have 63 programs in 29 states in D.C. on the non-public side. Charter schools, I think, we're in all but two states now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of growth. Six, but six, six. Well, so you know, I, I apologize. I always think they're everywhere. Um, but we've seen this dramatic growth, right? Uh, and so I think that's the good news. What's really good news, though, is I think two things are happening. One, people are realizing that choice shouldn't just be for some. 
It should be for everyone. And I mean, by that I mean, no one thinks that public schooling should just be for some kids or for kids who are poor. It's for everyone. No one says that charter schools shouldn't be for everyone or it should just be for poor. It's for everyone. And I think even in the non-public sector, we're realizing, hey, we should be funding kids to go wherever they want. It should be for everyone. And so the choice programs that are being designed now on the non-public side are much broader. They're more universal and mm-hmm. they're not targeted. The second thing I think we're realizing is, you know, people don't need to be told how to run things. Mm-hmm. People are actually pretty good at doing it themselves if you give them the framework. And so there's this been this move uh, in the last few years to be what I would call technocratic, uh, which is basically tell people what to do. It's top-down reform is what I call it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's changed, and I think that's beginning to change. And I think people are pushing back on that. So I think there's two really good trends. If you're looking for this coming year, I think places like Mississippi and New Hampshire are really ripe, and Iowa is still on the on the cusp, and Indiana will still grow. I just think you're going to see it all over the country still. Because you've got so many state legislators who, many of them are new, some of them have been fighting this for a long time, that they want to jump in. But before I come back to politics, something that you just said about we don't need to tell people what to do. There is a trend today in education. In fact, it's taught in top education schools, including my alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, about student agency. A lot of discussion. You know, you've got two boys. I've got four kids. People used to tell me when they were younger, oh, they need to have independence. They need to figure out and create their own path. Give them more agency. So on one hand, the collective education think says students, and by the way, I came to believe that in part, maybe because, you know, that's what you learn as you as you grow, that yes, they could actually figure out some things on their own without me telling them what to do. So if we're really big on student agency, why aren't we big on parent agency? Well, so that's a great question. And as a, son, a parent of a special needs son, you know, who the whole conversation was how to get him to have agency and be independent. And that was the, the entire discussion. Who was having that discussion with you? Uh, the school systems, Schools. right? And, and and frankly, we were as a family, right? Because it's important that he was able to learn that, right? And it was an important skill that he'd be able to live and, and work and breathe on his own. Thankfully, this kid's already a junior in college. He's doing great, right? Um, here's Here's what's happening on the other side of this is people don't trust parents. Right? We've heard over and over that these parents can't make good decisions. And we've had it beaten into us on, oh, parents don't come to schools and parents don't participate and parents don't get involved. Well, my argument back to that is who would want to get involved in a system where they have no real power? Mm-hmm. Now, you could make the argument that they vote and they have a chance to vote in the elections. But since only like 6% of the people vote in school board elections, right. really it's not representative. It's actually a closed system. So what school choice does is reorient that power structure and give parents back the power. And what you find is when they have that choice, guess what? They get more involved. So one of the things we're finding in Indiana, for example, of the voucher parents is that they're reporting that they are six times more likely to communicate with their teachers in their new school than their old school. That they're six times more likely to participate in school activities in their new school than their old school. Because there's an incentive. Because there's an incentive. And so what's happening is, is people actually don't trust parents. And I'm going to name a name here. This is exactly what Joel Edelman at Stanford Children believes. He says he's for parents, but in the end of the day, he's actually not. He says he says that he wants to help parents on the ground, but he actually wants to tell them what he thinks is right, as opposed to actually trusting them. Now, do I believe we need to make sure everyone has good information? Absolutely. In fact, I was a social worker, so I believe that wholeheartedly. And I want to work myself out of a job so I can be a parent educator again. But I don't think that I can do that without giving the framework of giving them the power first. That's right. Well, and there are a lot of organizations and people working around who have very great uh, intentions, and they're creating new teacher pools, and they're trying to, to organize teachers, and they're they're working in and around the charter school space, and some in other dimensions, 
who um, do think that a lot of government still needs to be part of the mix. And we're sitting here with a system that was created 180 years ago that more than 60% of our kids aren't proficient in anything. So government clearly isn't the answer. Is there a role for government in education? So that's the exact right question, Jeannie, right? So look, while I call out someone like Jonah, and I appreciate there are a lot of good state stands that are pretty good, uh, but here's the question that we're not asking nationally. What is the proper role of government education? Is the role of government education to run it, provide it, pay for it, and provide all the wraparound services and tell parents when and how to show up? Or is it to say we want to fund parents to do something that they can control with their own children, make sure that they're getting educated? There should be some level of oversight and transparency, absolutely. And, and then who cares where it's delivered so long as it's delivered well? I mean, I always say I'm agnostic towards school type. So, you know, public school, charter school, homeschool, private school, or whatever we haven't even come up with yet. Right. I'm agnostic towards that so long as the role of the government is to fund it, make sure teachers actually have a role in it, and make sure parents have power in it. You know, it uh, it makes sense. We talk a lot about on this program in the country, uh, lots of mediums about freedom and power and common sense. Polls show, right, that that actually follows. So what's the impediment? Is it teachers? Is it unions? Is it lackadaisical politicians? Who's our bad guy? Uh, that's a great question. Um, and I think there are multiple bad guys, right, as always. Um, so... So, first of all, I think one of our impediments is a lack of knowledge, right? And not only a lack of knowledge about what power parents already have, uh, but about how schools are funded and how systems work, right? I mean, I think we have sort of gotten past the idea of knowing how things work in this country, right? And, and I think that's a real problem. We've got to figure out. When, when only 26% of the country can name the three branches of government, that's a real problem. That's a problem. So we have to figure out how to educate people. Again, that's a real impediment. Secondly, I, I think one of the bad guys, and I, and I mean to say this intentionally, is a system. I think we've forgotten that, you know, ironically, that, that you, you hear people on the left say systemic justice, systemic injustice. Well, that's what we have in education, right? We actually have a systemic injustice problem. Um, and so there is a pr bad guy in the system. Now, that's not individual teachers, and that's not individual administrators. That's not people. Mm -hmm. That's actually the way the structure works. And so I think there's an education problem. I think there's a system problem. And then I think, and here's where it gets controversial, there's a suburban white problem. Mm -hmm. right? just going to ask you about and that. And so we have a system in this country where we have created a segregated school system, even more so than we've had with versus Brown v. Board. And what we've done is we've said to ourselves, hey, it's okay to draw districts where the majority of people are people of color or people who are white. So we've created this system, systemic segregation. That's what well, I mean by systemic. And so, so on the suburban question, I've got a lot of friends. I've met a lot of people over time who, you know, their politics seem predisposed sometimes to more freedom and less government, even if that may not have a label. And yet they'll say things like, well, that school worked great for my kids. Why can't it work well for your kids? Or don't you think you're being picky? And our schools are great. I remember even, um, even former Education Secretary Bill Bennett once said to me about our local high school, which I chose not to send my kids to, well, that's a great school. And I thought, well, it's a great school because it's great stock. But it's not necessarily adding value. That's right. That's right. Well, that's, those are the people I call the freedom for me, not for thee crowd, right? And, and so... Look, let's be very clear why I think Ed Choice is in this game and why I think ultimately what Dr. Friedman wanted. This idea of zip code assigned school districts or assignment-based districts 
is absolutely unjust, and it has to be upended, right? So until we actually get rid of the idea of a school district boundary, then we're not going to change this country. Mm -hmm. And that's what ultimately school choice does in charter schools and magnet schools, cross-district and and voucher schools or private schools that receive vouchers. All of that serves to get rid of district boundaries because that's the most important bit. So lest anyone think that I have a problem with my former boss and um, huge mentor and hero, Bill Bennett, he coined the term the three C's, content, character, and choice. That was in the 80s, Robert. Remember that when he was education secretary many moons ago, we were 12, remember? And uh, he went to Japan. And he came back and he talked about the Japanese education system. And he said when they were doing a science lesson, they lined up all sorts of different size containers. They had liquids in them. And then they moved liquids back and forth. And they thought and talked about the difference in variation. Is this one larger? And is this one smaller? And they learned to measure. And that was science. And it was math. And it was all sorts of different kinds of lessons that they were exposing students to. And then he came back into American classrooms. And everyone was sitting, staring at a teacher and uh, listening and not really engaging. And even he, back then, some 30 years, some odd years ago, that was something that was observed on an international level. And so how does choice and what we're talking about get to the heart of, you know, I'm a huge fan of ed tech, innovation. How do we drive different approaches to learning and teaching into a classroom. Can we do it parallel? Do we need to wait until we get choices, or can we be doing it now? Um, so I think all of the above is part of it. But let's let's go back to the, the original conversation about, so first of all, there are a lot of good schools out there doing a lot of great stuff. But because the way the system is structured, it can't be replicated, and it can't be grown. Gotcha. So the charter school that my son went to, which is actually now growing to another one, and it could be done in public school. My, my son went to a charter school where he went to Purdue University basically as a junior. He had 45 credits. Right? And so this stuff is happening in science and all, but, but the system gets in the way. Second point, this, this idea that Americans don't have choice already is ridiculous, right? So and here's what I mean by that. If you look at the data that was compiled in Pursuing Innovation, something that Pat Wolf uh, did for us at, at Choice, who was one of our studies, he looked at um, how many families are already choosing in America. And the latest year we could find is basically, in terms of all forms of choice, that includes public to public, uh, private school choice, charter school choice, already 58% of the country are choosing, right? And if you exclude the public to public, 40% of the country are choosing, either either across their district or charter schools or home schools or private schools. The share is already big. So this idea that it, it's, a weird, it's not happening is crazy. It's already out there. Now... Here's, which, here's the question you really ask, is can we do it in tandem or do we have to do it separately? And I think the answer is it has to be in tandem, right? So we have to be funding innovative ideas. We have to on one side. The other side, we actually have to be changing the nature of funding, right? So I make this argument all the time. You, you can't really go anywhere until you shift where the funds go. And so you have to be focusing on you that. You have to. You have to, because if it's if it's always and has been about the money. It's like follow the money. Tom follow Cruise, the money. Let's bring it back. That's right. So so it's about the money. And if you have about the money, then it's about the, the kind of innovation you can create. And so I look at it sort of like a continuum as you're trying to get the money and you're trying to create innovation. They sort of overlap in the middle. We're talking to Robert Enloe, President and CEO, CEO of Ed Choice, is my guest, and we're talking about uh, education and all things education and politics, as we do in Reality Check. Robert, Hollywood. Let's talk about Hollywood for a minute. There was hooray a movie, for hooray for Hollywood. There was a movie a few years ago, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Viola Davis. I had the pleasure of advising on the movie called Won't Back Down. It hit theaters and it went away. 
And it was all about parents being able to create their own schools with teachers and make choices. Flash forward, Matt Damon is narrating a documentary that lambasts this whole idea of money following kids. I guess you're wondering why I'm talking about Hollywood, but I'm trying to get to how do we get, and, you know, the other night Oprah talked more recently on the Golden Globe about, you know, the Me Too movement, and all of a sudden she's running for president the next day. Clearly Hollywood has an impact on how people think. Do we just need to find a movie star to talk about this stuff, or do we need to get on Tucker Carlson on Fox a bunch of times? Like, what's the angle here? Okay, that's a great question. And first of all, as I recall, doesn't Matt Damon send his kids to a very exclusive private school? He does. Isn't that a shock? I'm surprised about that. And he lives in an expensive, affluent area of California, and he he could send him to a good public school. Yeah, so he already has choice. The reality is he has choice, and that's fine. And, And I don't begrudge him that choice. In fact, he should be free to make that choice. So should everyone else. Right. And unfortunately, a demography uh, and where you live, unfortunately, determines the quality of your education sometimes. And that's unfortunate. Um, do we need a Hollywood star? Sure. I, I don't know if we need Hollywood. We need some kind of different voice than Tucker Carlson, even though I think Tucker Carlson is great. The, the talking head uh, conversations have to stop and we have to get into real conversations with real people. Because I tell you what real people talk about and real parents talk about, I'm sure you know, they just want to do what's right for their kid. They do. They just don't care where it is. They just want to do what's right for their kid. And if it doesn't work, they want the freedom to go somewhere else. And I've heard parent after parent talk about how difficult the school was for their child on special needs. And I've heard, by the way, parents in private schools say this isn't working. Now in places like where I live, they have the freedom to move between them and do what's right for their kids. Well, and, you know, everyone has probably has the story. But I, you know, I shared this with you once upon a time. And um I know this stuff. I've grown up around this. This is my professional career, and I was intimidated by walking in the principal's office. Yes, sister, if you're hearing and listening to me, and talking on behalf of my child. I knew that the math program stunk. I knew that the reading program was not anywhere near the kind of rigor that my son needed to learn to read. And yet getting ready for a parent-teacher conference was unnerving. There's nothing I've ever been more nervous about in my life. And that is someone who has a background in education policy, who has no problem talking to anyone. Imagine a parent who doesn't have that background, who wakes up in the morning and their bills aren't being paid. They've been told that their kid is, is being bad. And all they have at their disposal is is like this fear that something's going to happen to their child if they don't do the right thing. Right. This is wrong. That's exactly wrong. And, and this is what we need to start changing that conversation. As you were talking, I was just thinking about how I want to be a parent advocate again. You know, even when I went, did with uh, for my kids, I remember I would go to this parent-teacher conference, and I was scared until, until it got to the point when I realized they're working for me. Mm-hmm. And so I walked in, I said at the beginning of the year, I said, hey, so my son's in your class this year, and here's what I expect from you. As a teacher, and what do you expect from me as a parent? What do you expect from my son? And then let's talk about if we're not meeting those expectations. Just that kind of conversation that we could have because I could move made a big difference. And so if we can help train parents to understand how to talk like that, how to have power and control like that, I think it changes the game. But that doesn't change until you give them the financial power to do so. And that's the whole thing about choice is giving parents, particularly low-income parents, the financial power to say, I'm done. Right. Exactly. I am done. So on that note, I am going to thank you for joining us today on Reality Check. Robert Enlow, you've been a terrific guest. For those of you who want more information about uh, EdChoice and what you can do to be helpful, go to edchoice.org. Thanks, Jeannie. Thank you, Robert. Reality Check is a podcast produced by National Review and posted at nationalreview.com. 
If you like what you heard in this podcast, and I hope you did, you might want to subscribe for free and make sure you don't miss any future programs. You can subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And you can also find much more about education reform, opportunity, and innovation at the Center for Education Reform's website, edreform.com. 